Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. David McNair is the Executive Director for Global Policy at One, a global movement aiming to eradicate extreme poverty and preventable disease by 2030. One, lobby governments, promote social and climate justice, and run active campaigns such as the Global Fund, which has saved 44 million lives from AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing effective activism, the importance of a human-centered approach to policymaking, and how to move towards a better, fairer world. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about this because I studied geography and uh, I did my PhD in geography, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Fantastic. That's a good start. Could I ask you to give us a little more detail about yourself and about One? Sure. So, well, starting with One, the core idea behind the One campaign is that politicians work for us as citizens. And if we raise our voices together, we can make big things happen. And it was born out of a campaign that kind of ran around the turn of the millennium uh, called the Jubilee Debt Campaign. Um, and basically what had happened was, you know, during the Cold War, rich countries had lent uh, to poorer countries in quite irresponsible ways, basically to kind of buy influence. And the, the presidents that had borrowed that money used it, you know, in corrupt ways. You know, a lot of it ended up in Swiss bank accounts and luxury property in Paris and all the rest. And what happened with that campaign is that millions of people came together and said, you know, that's not fair. The kind of the people living in poverty in these countries shouldn't be paying for other people's mistakes. And because, you know, millions of people came together, petitions, like major street protests, a really kind of large head of steam built and, and a kind of political pressure among G7 governments. And as a result, $130 billion of debt was cancelled. And to give you a sense of the scale of that, it would take the average person in the UK on the average income 295,000 years to pay off a loan of that size. So it just shows you, you know, if people come together, they can make really big changes. If they if they kind of make the arguments well, speak with one collective voice and convince people in power to make a change. As a result of that cancellation, a lot of countries in Africa, you know, had money freed up that they weren't therefore paying for these debts. And as a result, they invested in education and about 50 million children went to school. So we often say, you know, this is not about charity. It's not about helping people who are less fortunate. It's about fixing fundamental injustices in our world and using our collective power as citizens to do that. That's an amazing achievement, the the cancellation of of that debt. Um, What year did that happen or was it achieved? The campaign and the moment was all framed around the, the millennium and the decisions that were made were kind of between like 2000 and 2005. But then it kicked off like a very technical process. Well, two technical processes with, you know, involving the IMF and the World Bank, uh, one called the Highly Indebted Poor Countries Initiative, and then another one called the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative. And they are still still going because there was kind of highly technical reasons for, you know, why this debt had to be kind of restructured and all that kind of thing. But the, but the key thing here is that, you know, there are a lot of highly technical issues that are really important and they're, they're, they are kept within a group of, you know, powerful people and experts. And if we can just kind of take those technical issues, but articulate the clear injustice and why things need to change, then you can get, get attention and get, and get policymakers to shift. 
And are most of those policymakers in the Western world? Is that where you focus your your activity? Or do you, I imagine, do different activities in different regions with different emphasis? Well, I mean, it's it's a really interesting conversation to be having now because the world is changing so fast. And, you know, a lot of countries in Africa, for example, are realizing that, you know, in the past they would have depended on G7 countries, the US, you know, France, Germany, UK, Japan, Italy for, you know, support for economic policies that, that they relied on. And that dynamic is starting to change. So during the Jubilee debt campaign, most of the debt was owed to G8 countries, but that was called the Paris Club. And in a sense, that was a kind of, it wasn't a, an easy campaign or a simple campaign, but the people that we needed to influence were basically eight, eight presidents and their finance ministers. And the world is a lot more complex now because, you know, China's lending money, you know, countries are going to like private markets and it's a much more kind of, you know, fuzzy world in which to work. But the core principle of the kind of key decision makers of the global economy, and particularly those with influence at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, they are still the G8 countries. And those countries are still very, very important for the work that we do. And in terms of funding for vulnerable countries around the world, the cost of capital is the biggest constraint to prosperity. Am I right in saying that? And if that's correct, um, could you explain what that sentence means? So there, there are two forms of, of capital, if you kind of think about it fairly simply. The first is public capital, which is mobilized through tax revenues. And that, you know, countries do it all the time. They raise revenues. They use that money to spend on health services and so on. They also, you know, rich countries also use that that revenue to, to spend on aid, which is used to finance poorer countries. But increasingly, what we're seeing is that countries, particularly in Africa, you know, over the past 20 years, the population in Africa has doubled from about 700 million to 1.4 billion. And the infrastructure needs associated with that ballooning population are massive. So what African countries have done over the past decade in particular is, you know, because of historically low interest rates, they've gone to capital markets to, to, to borrow money to invest in their own infrastructure. And now that, you know, that landscape is changing, that interest rates are rising, most of that debt is denominated in US dollars. And therefore, if the US Federal Reserve increases its rates to tackle inflation in the US, it has a knock-on effect on those countries' ability to pay the loans. And often, often you know, just like a credit card, they're kind of on short-term variable interest rates so that the costs can change overnight. And those debts need to be paid. So there's less money to invest in health and education and so on. And one thing that's being picked up more and more by African leaders And there was actually an African Union summit in in Ethiopia this weekend. And the Kenyan president, William Ruto, made this point really clearly. He said, you know, if you're a rich country and you go to the capital markets to invest in, say, a solar plant, you'll pay like interest rates of like one or two percent. If you're an African country, you'll pay, you know, 14 percent or 20 percent because African countries are considered more risky. And in his view, that's not fair. Now, there are lots of reasons for that, you know, there's regulatory risk, there's, you know, perceptions, there's, you know, all kinds of dynamics. But it is a problem that needs to be addressed. Because if we're to think about climate change and the need to A, build resilience to climate change, but also transition our energy system, then you're going to need like billions, if not trillions of investment. And not all of that is going to come from public money, from taxpayers. It will also need to come from private capital and private investors. And if countries are spending 14% on interest on, on loans, 
it's just not going to be viable. They won't be able to afford to do it. And as a result, you know, those countries aren't going to be prepared for climate change, but they're also not going to be able to transition away from fossil fuels, which we obviously need to do. So I think this is this is kind of increasingly a kind of a fundamental driver of inequality. It's seen as a fundamental injustice issue and we need to find solutions to it, even if it's complex. But, you know, as we talked about with debt, you know, debt is very complex, but we articulated, you know, the injustice of it and mobilized people and it led to a really powerful outcome. And what's the solution to that, David? Is it lower interest rates or are there other quick fixes, if you excuse the the phrase, to help with the energy transition or with the spread of capital? Well, there are a few different kind of approaches to this. One is to take a kind of project level. So what a lot of aid donors are doing now is using their aid budgets to help countries put together robust cases for investment. They're then using what are called development finance institutions, which are basically you know, private investors, but kind of quasi-public and kind of subsidized by taxpayers to bring in more money. And then when, a, when the project is seen as viable uh, and profitable, then private investors come in. So, so Mozambique did this, you know, in the 2010s, they wanted to build a major solar plant and it just didn't work because the country was considered too risky. And the Norwegian government came in initially with aid to, to support the proposal, then with development finance capital, then through you know using their sovereign wealth fund um, and, and and taking this to kind of private investors, and this is now uh, you know a, a viable solar plant which is serving you know hundreds of thousands of people, create, created a thousand jobs, and is saving you know masses in terms of carbon emissions. So that's at the project level. So we need much more of that kind of thing, but then at the kind of macroeconomic level. There are questions about, you know, A, are the risk profiles for low and middle income countries fair? And there is an argument to say that the absence of enough economic data allows these perceptions to basically kind of be maintained. So if you go to the Bloomberg terminal, which is the portal that all the kind of financiers use, and you look for economic data on the US, you'll find endless amounts of data that is kind of like updated by the second. If you look for data on Malawi, there's very, very little. So there's an argument to say that we need to invest in data to avoid these kind of risk perceptions occurring. And then the third is there are ways in which you can use these institutions that were set up after the Second World War called multilateral development banks. The most famous of which is the World Bank, uh, which was set up almost 80 years ago. And basically what it does is it takes aid money again from donors it leverages that on, on capital markets, so, so private investors buy bonds in the World Bank, um, and then they use what is considered to be a kind of very safe operating model. So they've got a AAA credit rating, and they then lend that money onto countries that would be considered more risky. And that has been working really well. But one of the debates at the moment is whether those multilateral development banks are just too cautious and whether they could lend an awful lot more money. So there is a proposal from the G20 to basically you know, encourage those banks to take a bit more risk. And they reckon that if the banks were to do so, they could still maintain their AAA credit rating, but they could also borrow like an additional trillion dollars, which could like fast forward the, the energy transition and help with a lot of the, the problems that we're facing now with poverty and lack of resilience and so on. So there are solutions out there. 
but they require a lot of political will and kind of courage from policymakers to to make the decisions. Another key aim from the One campaign is about climate change. And we've already talked about the energy transition, largely in Africa so far, which is also, I think, SDG goal 13. Were you pleased to hear about the adaptation fund from COP26 to help with adapting to climate change? I think that was a positive step. Um, although there's a difference between the agreement of a fund and the fund actually being funded. Um, and, and part of the big tension is that, you know, back in the one of the major climate conferences in Copenhagen in 2009, the rich countries promised to uh, pay $100 billion a year in climate support for, for vulnerable countries. And that hasn't been delivered yet. So, so that's a kind of real tension that, you know, there's lots of these summits that lead to like announcements of new funds or new initiatives, but then there's no follow through. And I think that's the key issue. And, and I think we do need to kind of think about building resilience to infrastructure uh, or resilient infrastructure to help countries weather the storms. Because if you look at the frequency of you know, natural disasters and extreme weather events, like they're, they're increasing dramatically. And for the countries that you know contributed the least to climate change, they are the most vulnerable to it, both at a country level because they don't have the infrastructure, but also at the individual level because people who are living on you know two dollars a day, they they simply can't invest in the kinds of things that would help them weather those storms. And when the storms happen, they don't have the backup to to kind of help them through that. So we need we need to do that. And I think a big part of this is again looking at debt. Because the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change are those that are most at risk of debt distress. So there are things that, that we need to do there. But the other piece of this is, is the potential for economic transformation. And I think not enough people are talking about this. You know, if we want to, you know, shift our energy system away from fossil fuels and towards renewables, we need rare earth metals, we need cobalt, we need platinum, we need manganese. And Africa, African countries, you know, particularly the DRC, but but many others, are abundant in these resources. So the question is, you know, does the rest of the world actually need Africa to enable the energy transition? And in doing so, can Africa basically kind of build the kind of electric vehicle battery production plants or whatever it might be to transform their own economies and create jobs in a way that will help make them more more sustainable. There are also lots of other, you know, reasons for why African countries are kind of, you know, essential to this. You know, Africa has 60% of the world's solar potential, half of the world's wind potential. So I think, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, us needing to transition our economies, there's there's a potential argument, but there's also a kind of a, a need argument that without low-income countries being on board with this, we just won't have the the physical resources to do it, you know. And on your point about um, infrastructure investment, particularly in Africa again, my impression is that the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank often does very well and is spreading its influence um, and seems to be funding really large projects. Why is that? Why is there more success and more projects from Chinese investment than European or Western? I think it's it's partly because... China has a plan, you know, so its Belt and Road Initiative has invested, you know, more than 100 billion in in Africa over the past decade in infrastructure projects. So, you know, part of that is a plan to build Chinese influence. 
just like you know Western governments would do, but they can move fast. So uh, an African president told my boss that if he wants to build a road, he can ask the Chinese to do it and he will be driving down it in the time that it takes the World Bank to sign the contract. And I think this speed issue is fundamentally important because A, you've got a massively increasing population. B, you've just got realities of politicians who are on electoral cycles and they want to demonstrate that they've done something in order to get elected again. And if you're waiting you know, for years for a contract to be delivered, that's just not going to work, you know. So I think I think China's ability to kind of move quickly is 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 really really important to their success here. However, I would I would say you know you know over the past ten years there was a massive increase of Chinese investment. China is not now starting to kind of pull back that partly because of its own economic problems, and partly because I think there's a realization that there was a bit of overreach. So at the last forum on China in Africa, there was an announcement that you know the Chinese you know, investments in infrastructure and those kind of big projects was going to kind of reduce dramatically. And I think Western governments, particularly the United States and, and, and perhaps European governments, are now realising that they need to step in, both because there's needs, but also because we're now in a kind of world of geopolitical fracturing and African countries have options on who they turn to. Um, so there's a bit of kind of competition and some people talk about this in terms of, you know, African countries being like pawns in a in a kind of global system. They've even been described by some as kind of like swing states in the new world order. I kind of see it slightly differently in that I think African countries are now realizing that they can play one partner off one another to get the best deal for themselves and that they have agency. And I think that can be could be quite a helpful thing in terms of getting to the scale of investments and the speed of investments that they need. Global health is also an important campaign aim from one. And that, again, is a global aim, particularly with the need to address challenges from pandemic preparedness. Um, How far can diseases actually be predicted and mitigated against? Well, the first thing to say is this is fundamentally a justice issue. So we got into this um, health work and campaigning on it during the height of the AIDS crisis. Where basically, you know, if you contracted HIV and AIDS in the United States, um, you you could get like these pills, you know, antiretrovirals, two drugs a day, and you would stay alive. And if you contracted HIV and AIDS in Malawi, you would die. And there was this kind of really stark kind of thing that you know the founders of one kind of realized. It's basically, you know, this principle of like where you're born shouldn't determine whether you live, but actually during the AIDS crisis, it did. Um, and if you got these two pills, which cost, I think, 20 cents a day, you lived. And if you didn't get the pills, you died. So so the, the, we made, kind of made a pitch, particularly to the United States government, which at the time was under George W. Bush, to say, this is a really major role that the US can play in solving one of the kind of big crises um, of our time. And in a sense, it was a, you know, it was a, an epidemic. And now, you know, through the campaigning, through the resources, I, I think the US has committed about $100 billion to su- supplying retro- antiretrovirals and other kind of countermeasures against HIV and AIDS. And now AIDS is no longer a death sentence, um, but also the spread of the disease is, is, is declining. So I think that is an example of, you know, a clear injustice issue. You articulate it, you get the right decisions. And, and 
you know, it transforms the lives of, of millions of people. So to come to your question about, you know, can pandemics be predicted? I think part of the challenge is that, you know, we haven't invested enough in disease surveillance, in information sharing, but also in the political leadership to respond to those issues. Um, and it was really striking during the, you know, the early days of COVID because, you know, you had all of these kind of pandemic preparedness indices that were saying that, you know, rich countries are best prepared because they've got all these labs and so on. But actually, the countries that did worst during the early days of the pandemic were actually, you know, in rich countries. You know, it was, it was the UK and the US because of the governance of those countries and because the political leaders weren't listening to the expert advice. Whereas because of African countries' response to Ebola and all that they had learned through the, the AIDS crisis and so on, they actually did much better on this, on simple things like, you know, testing people when they come into the country, you know, and all of that. So I think there are things that we can do to prepare for future pandemics. The problem is that they need investments. And what you see is a kind of this cycle of boom and bust. You know, people's attention is very short. So you have to have a big event and suddenly the kind of interest and funding for pandemic preparedness surges. And then over time it wanes again. And I think what we need to be doing is to think through how can we think about these kinds of threats more like we think about traditional defence? You know, on traditional defence, you know, there's a NATO 2% target. Not everyone meets it, of course, but we recognise that in, you know, situations where there is a kind of traditional security threat, bombs, all the rest, like we need the capabilities to be able to respond. And what COVID showed us was that, you know, a virus can be as, if not more, devastating to our people, to our economy, to our way of life as a military invasion, but we're not thinking that same kind of way. And I think part of what we need to do is to say, actually, maybe we do need a NATO-style target for health threats and for other kinds of threats so that we're not just kind of going around with a begging bowl trying to kind of get commitments to these vertical funds, but actually we've got a commitment that we're preparing for these things for the long term because it's in our in our interest to do so, you know. And has our approach to preparedness changed? Um, was COVID-19 just a, a blip in positive collaboration? Or has that actually changed approaches and mindsets um, internationally and collaboratively? I kind of fear that it hasn't, to be honest. I mean, there's a whole agenda around a pandemic treaty at the, at the World Health Organization. There's a pandemic fund at the World Bank. But if you look at the commitments to that, I mean, I think it's like, billion, which sounds like a lot, but in the context of what is needed and what the risks are, I mean, that's that's nothing, you know. So I I fear that, you know, whenever, uh, this time last year, whenever Putin invaded Ukraine, suddenly the attention on the pandemic was kind of over. And, you know, the pandemic is still ongoing. You know, there's still, you know, very low vaccination rates in a lot of countries. There are still risks of variants occurring and so on. So I think the political attention and the short short termism in our political system is a real problem for big issues like this you know and when you try and tackle these issues either over flows of capital or um, combating climate change or global health is storytelling important in getting your message across when you're running a campaign absolutely so it's, it's really interesting because when the founders of of one were you know working on the aids crisis they wanted to get business leaders to support uh, the campaign, uh, and they went to see Steve Jobs uh, at Apple, 
uh, and explained, you know, all the issues, the kind of injustices of, of, you know, the fact that people were dying of AIDS in poor countries and didn't have access to drugs. And Steve Jobs said to them, you know, you're in the wrong business. You think you're in the aid business. You need to be in the magic business. And the magic was that if you have access to these two drugs, you live. Uh, and it was almost a similar pitch to the one that he made about the iPod at a time when, you know, if you want to carry your music around, you needed like to carry CDs and, you know, the walk, Walkman and tapes and all the rest. And his pitch was, you got a thousand songs in your pocket. Uh, and at, at the time that was, that seemed like magic. So I think that kind of storytelling uh, and marketing of, of what's possible is really, really important. And, and we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how we use data, how we make sure that we're kind of really credible in our arguments. But ultimately, people don't remember data points. Yeah, they aren't moved by data points. They're moved by stories. And I think that's, that's such an important part of, of what we, we do, both telling the story of potential in terms of how, you know, people coming together can achieve these great changes like the AIDS campaign, like the debt campaign, but also telling the stories of individuals who are affected by these issues and how their lives can be transformed. And your aim is to achieve the eradication of extreme poverty and preventable disease, as I said in the introduction, by 2030. Is that correct? Yep. Um, and that's that's aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which were agreed in, in 2015. Sadly, they're way off track, and I, I, I'd be very surprised if that goal is, is go going to be met. In fact, the goal on extreme poverty is going in the wrong direction since COVID. So after you know three decades of reductions in extreme poverty, it's now on the increase. And I think we're in a very, very difficult environment where all of these threats that we're facing jeopardize that you know, progress against preventable disease, against extreme poverty. And we need to, again, think big about the kinds of transformations that, that need to happen. And I think we can do it. You know, there's an, an, often a saying that kind of major crises lead to major reform. And that's true. I mean, if you look at, you know, the cholera epidemic uh, or, you know, London's kind of so-called great stink, it led to like the sewage system being built. And we should think about, you know, this crisis period that we're in, both COVID, but also the war in Ukraine as a, as a chance to think really, really big about the changes that we need. And I think those are ideas like investing trillions now, transforming our energy system, because if we do that, we'll both protect the planet, but also we'll effectively have access to free energy and won't have to go to Putin to buy gas anymore. So I think there are kind of compelling stories that we can tell about the potential, but it needs political bravery. And that political bravery can only happen if politicians know that they're not going to get voted out of office um, if they make these decisions. And that's where citizens come in. If we can build you know, mass movements of people who are saying, you know, we, we not only want this, but we demand this, and we're speaking with one voice, we may disagree on lots of things, but we agree on this and we want you to act, then these big changes can happen. And finally, on that point about thinking big and trying to promote political bravery, in your opinion, what do you think is the most important change, either that we've touched upon today or that we, we haven't got to, uh, to bring about a fairer, kinder world? I mean, I think there are like long lists of kind of technical issues or policy changes or kind of campaign issues. And I think in our world of kind of campaigners, we're far too fragmented. It's almost like, you know, people campaigning on health or competing with people com campaigning on hunger, you know, competing with people who are campaigning on 
you know, other forms of rights. And I think if you're, you know, if you're an individual, you don't kind of disaggregate these things. They're not in competition. You know, an individual, you know, wants access to healthcare when they need it. They want to be able to eat food. They want, you know, their voice to be heard. And I think we need to come together uh, as a movement to say, actually, there are fundamental principles of justice and fairness that need to be kind of shaping our whole economic and political system. Uh, and that starts with the kind of very basis, which is that where you live shouldn't determine whether you live. Um, but then it kind of, you know, it leads into all kinds of technical issues. And I think if we were to have that kind of starting point and a movement of people that said, yes, we're demanding fairness and we want our politicians to act on that principle, then it would lead to all kinds of changes and transformation and political bravery to make these big steps. So so my, my kind of thought is, let's not pick a kind of individual issue or policy change or, or pet campaign. Let's come together and use our collective voice and our power to push for fairness and justice. And if people are interested in, in joining that collective voice and finding out more about One, where can they go to find more information? One.org, O-N-E.org is the, is the place where you can join. And if you're interested in more kind of technical policy stuff, you can go to data.one.org and we've got all kinds of visualizations and explainers of these kind of policy issues. Our kind of philosophy is that, you know, the world is a kind of very complex and volatile place. And if you can kind of explain the drivers of that and explain you know, who's making the decisions, when they're making the decisions, and give people a sense of agency within that, then, you know, you can you can really empower people, that, and that's a very kind of motivating, empowering thing. So we want people to understand the issues first, um, and if you go to data.one.org, you can, you can do that. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.